This is the uh, panel discussion on analyzing the results of the uh, general elections in Argentina that went uh, last Sunday. Um, and we are happy at the Institute of Americas to host this event to be able to at least attempt to analyze the immediate uh, effects of events, not just trying to deal with issues once they are uh, they became properly academic, but rather to deal with contemporary issues as well. So we are delighted to have this panel today and to be uh, honored by the presence of uh, Anna Margaritis, who is um, reader of, uh, of international relations at Southampton, Celia uh, Schusterman, who is uh, an affiliate of the Institute and the director of Latin American studies in the Institute of Statecraft, and uh, Francisco Panisa, who is Professor of Comparative and Latin American Politics at the London School of Economics. So um, we will begin with uh, short interventions by the panelists, and then we will open uh, for questions of public and responses. Um, Anna, would you like okay. to Thank you. Thank you Juan, for the invitation. Thank you for the, uh, the pleasure to be in the Institute again. Um, and I like to offer a few comments. Uh, I don't do research on electoral politics, but um, it's always a challenge when you're a scholar living abroad for more than 15 years. I, I face this question: How do we explain Argentina? How, uh, it's implicitly is how do you explain that weird case, the one that is the outlier in all the theories, and, and what is it that Peronism is? Can you hear? Um, um, so I felt more than once uncomfortable with the question, and I said several times I'm not going to comment on that. And lately, I've been teasing those who ask, saying, um, what do you mean? Ar Argentina is stable now. It's, uh, we all know Peronism is going to win, always wins elections, so for the last... Uh, few decades, we, we saw this change in the political party system and um, the emergence of a single dominant political party. So I was uh, saying that with some humor, there's nothing to, to explain. And when I thought that I found a way of eluding that question, here we have another change. <laughs> so, um, so for me, this elections, the uh, pose a big question about what kind of change um, this might bring and what is the scope of that change. And thinking that uh, of, of uh, providing with you with some comments from an academic point of view, I thought, uh, well, the change give us an excuse, all of us, an excuse to revisit certain things that we've been saying for uh, for the last three decades, at least, about the, the evolution of the political system in Argentina. There's something for all of us, uh, if we think of the uh, people working in, in mainstream electoral politics or uh, party politics, um, the first thing to, to notice, well, the map is changing, obviously. Um, we, we've been saying uh, this uh, bipartisan bipartisan political system has, has changed completely. But I think we also 
uh, fell into some mistakes when, when Peronism emerged as the dominant political force. On the one hand, some people started to compare that to Mexico under the PRI and to try to read those uh, struggles among factions of Peronism as we used to do with, with the PRI when, when the practice of uh, the incumbent pointing to the successor would, would trigger that realignment of Camarillas, as they call it there, that kind of informal movement to realign with a new boss. Um, so some people started those comparisons as, as if all single parties uh, systems will work in the same way. Well, today we see that is not exactly what happened. Uh, the fractions within Peronism, um, they don't align automatically, and Peronism lost in districts that were traditionally uh, their, um, their strong base. Um, in especially some municipalities or, or uh, counties within the province of Buenos Aires. So the traditional strength of Peronism that usually was in the backward uh, provinces in the very north and very south uh, has been challenged in um, the local bosses loyalty is now at, um, under discussion, it's not certain. So that was the first thing to, to note if we are in that um, in that type of analysis. Um, on the other hand, some colleagues have been also saying that the strength of Peronism was uh, more or less uh, rooted in, in this uh, demographic um, electoral politics that gave it stability over the last uh, uh, two decades. And, uh, and that is, the strength doesn't lie on the party ideology or the party identity or uh, then even the networks that Peronism managed uh, so well on, on the ground. Um, they said it's the perception of the capacity to manage the crisis, to, uh, to govern, basically, to guarantee governability. This is what drives voters to support it, even those who do not identify themselves as members of the party. Um, I've been arguing with this, this friends and colleagues that, uh, because I think that the, the change uh, runs deeper than that. Uh, the capacity to, to govern is actually a, a result of a, of a perverse um, tool. Um, Peronism has been able to maintain the conditions of instability, basically, over the years uh, when um, and that became a, a helpful uh, tool to stay in power. When we saw the, the underestimation of institutional building um, in, in several of the, of the measures of the executive, um, even at the price of undermining uh, democratic institutions and alienating citizens who are fed up of instability, um, they did so. And that transformed itself in, into this uh, manager of of instability. Um, so I think that that uh, argument that, again, we heard uh, yesterday, uh, especially from business circles and investors and so, needs to be revisited. Now, from, for others who work more on the, on the institutionalist um, area of uh, analysis, uh, this result also calls for a 
one more discussion about coalition building and coalition dynamics that is is quite um, unusual, quite rare, rare in Argentina. This, uh, the practice of compromises, consensus building, power sharing, and so it's something that politicians um, do not practice too much or, or do not like too much. Uh, so the first challenge, obviously, now is um, to build a, an electoral coalition for the, the runoff. Um, but beyond that, in the long term, the, um, the new executive will have to, again, work around uh, coalitions because the Chamber of Deputies is totally fragmented now. Uh, if it is, uh, Scioli, the winner, will not count on, on majority there. Um, and there are new small blocks emerging and, and so. So coalition building will have to be revisited as, as a tool and as a practice once again. And for us, that, is, that fits into a line of analysis that some of us uh, have practiced. And then for those who are more on the comparative politics and interdisciplinary studies, there are also some, some challenges. I think that uh, the results um, show a certain tension about how much change voters and leaders will embrace. Um, and I, on, on that, I, I, I see some ambivalent um, signs. Um, if you look at, uh, at the side of leaders, for instance, um, the three front runners that we had in this election, um, they were, uh, mentioning change, um, different degrees, different uh, uh, nuances on, on the proposals, but basically these, are, these were very moderate, pragmatic uh, leaders. They, the three of them were quite close in terms of proposals. Um, they ran with that kind of non-confrontational uh, positive message that we that we saw in other candidates in, in neighboring countries in the last elections, Brazil and so, um, and moving towards the center. Uh, in that sense, none of them looks like uh, uh, someone who would change radically uh, the, the scenarios. Um, maybe Macri today looks like that kind of promise of, of change and probably has a, a profile that is a bit more um, appealing in, to, to some voters in the sense that he's perceived as more successful and even one would say less boring than, than Scioli. Um, but that, that's all, that, that's the, the scope of, of change there. Um, and if you look at uh, on the side of voters then, the, the few um, uh, signs that we have on that, uh, the few, sources of information. Um, well, they have said close to the election that uh, only one third of the electorate was um, embracing change or was expecting change. Um, on the rest, 20% uh, would not like any change at all and the other 50 would be fine with cosmetic changes. Um, and then, uh, if you look at who is in each group, then the ones who would push for change were mostly women, uh, people over um, 50, 
um, some in a condition of underemployment or, or unemployed or so, um, those who were directly affected even either by economic situations or by insecurity or, or things like that. Um, the rest seems to be a quite passive um, uh, contempt um, a voter who is uh, relatively indifferent to politics and to questions of community and society. It's more drawn towards uh, private life, if, if you want. Um, and this seems to be a, a, an underlying um, cultural change that some sociologists are, are pointed out. Um, and, and then uh, if that is true, then they, that voter really embraces change only if that affects crucial things, say economic situation, personal economic situation, or uh, insecurity, like it happened in the case of the rise of crime that hits certain sectors. Um, but other than that, they're not willing to go uh, out of their comfort zone and, um, uh, and really work on community issues more than in, on private ones. So that's why um, colleagues are, are saying, uh, specialists uh, on this, uh, only those really hit by uh, those two things, inequality and insecurity then, uh, would be the ones that could um, push for change. And those are sectors that usually um, are reached out by those political machines of the political parties, the, basically Peronism, uh, still reach out, still under that, that kind of clientelistic network that, as, again, specialists are saying, uh, could buy votes um, around 5 10% of the votes. That's what they estimate. Um, and that's why then, for my initial question, that I'm thinking, well, what kind of change this might bring and what is the scope of that change? I'm, I'm hopeful for change, but, um, but this, the combination of these three things, the, the leaders with certain limitations that do not look like the most transgressive leaders uh, ever, uh, this passive, um, sort of lazy voter, comfortable voter in the clientelistic party machines that are still in place and work in some areas of the territory then make me be uh, more cautious on the prospects. Thank you Thank so you, much. Thank you, Anna. <laughs> and uh, so we'll give to Francisco. Um, okay. Um, the Brazilian... Uh, used to have this saying, which I found great, who said, Ningen sabe que vai sair da barriga da mulher ou da boca da urna, which translates, <laughs> nobody knows what's coming out of the womb of a pregnant woman or of a ballot book. Of course, relatives is a very, very old saying before the invention of ultrasound scans and <laughs> an opinion poll. But happily for us, the second part of, the, of, of this saying has come back with a vengeance, with a failure of to predict the uh, electoral results in several elections. This is the third, particularly for me, the third one I get my fingers burned by uh, believing too much to the polls. So the first was in Uruguay, the second, the recent uh, election here now, here in Argentina. So welcome to the age of uncertainty. Again, it's much more fun, as I said. Um, so I'm not going to sort of burn my fingers again to try to predict what happened in Argentina, but to rely on the sort of much more 
uh, easy uh, game of trying to explain more or less what happened on Sunday and making a, f a few scenarios that will, I think will how the, the second round will, will, will pan out. Uh, the first thing, um, there is one something that's quite interesting that Christina said, I think on Friday and Saturday, said, I'm really happy because I am living a normal country. And this you'd think is a bit rich of coming from Christina, which has, and uh, have said, has thrived in uncertainty, in breaking rules, in creating conflicts or whatever. But uh, by chance or by design or because perhaps of some underlying and little recognized the strengths of Argentinian democracy, the election was an incredibly normal and even boring election. You have a typical scenario of mature democracy as a candidate of the center-right, a candidate of the center-left, Massa, I don't know, somewhere in the middle. Right. Okay, on the right. Uh, so typical Downsian elections in which two sort of the, the candidates align towards the center of the electorate try to fight for a narrow margin of the votes. Uh, but of course, Argentina can never be a normal country, and this has to do again with Margaret, with Sunset, a lot to do with Peronists and the influence of Peronists in Argentinian politics. For good or for bad, depending on, on your opinion, but Peronists is the big difference between Argentina and this so-called normality, which again has a conservative and a, and a sort of left version of what is sort of Argentina exception. It's Europeans in America for conservative, the national popular for the left. Anyway, um, so we have this sort of, and I think the thing that come out as non-predictable, not normal in Argentina was the breakdown of, again, I'm referring to, 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 to Anna, of two great myths in Argentinian politics. First was the myth of the invincibility, the electoral invincibility of Peronists. That as time came back and the election became near, it became the invincibility of Kirchnerismo, which of course is not the same as Peronismo. And there were very, very good reasons for that, and I can't go on that, but just one, one thing is uh, the, the pass of the, the primary elections in June, uh, they were, uh, in, in, in a way, they were quite astonishing that Kirchnerismo got 38% of the votes with the economic situation that, that it was, uh, with all the, compared with, you know, the, the economy in Argentina for the last two or three years has been more or less doing more or less the same as Brazil compared what is the popularity of, of Dilma today uh, with a 38% of Syria. And it was, a, I think, on the whole, a pretty poor result for Macri. And when you have the candidate with 38, 39%, just below the 40%, you would bet that, that, that Sioli would have been a very, very strong candidate. And that's what, so this idea of, of the invincibility of Kirchnerismo and all these myths of Peronismo as a sort of election winning machine, blah, blah, blah. The second, of course, which is quite closely associated with that is the myth of the invincible machine of Peronismo, political machine in, in the provincia de Buenos Aires, which of course is the basis of the invincibility of Peronismo. And so this, the myth of the invincibility of Peronismo, we still, we don't know what happened, but we know that the political machine in provincia de Buenos Aires was trash. So uh, what happened then to, 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 to this myth of the invincibility of Peronismo? First, of course, in Provincia of Buenos Aires, there was a very, very bad candidate uh, that explains a lot of what went wrong with Peronismo, but doesn't explain everything. Uh, together, because uh, again, uh, it was possible that many, many voters did to vote for the opposition candidate, Vidal, 
for the province and vote for Scioli. They want Cortal Boleta, they said in Argentina. But also you have this pattern uh, developing in Argentina where Cambiemos won the elections in the larger, more urbanized, uh, if you want to call it more urban provinces and provincia escape province of Buenos Aires, uh, Capital Federal, Córdoba, Santa Fe, Mendoza. And the, uh, the Frente por la Victoria get sort of still wins, but in the smaller peripheral poor provinces, we have one or two exceptions in areas among these. Uh, but this is not enough. This, is, this core captive vote is not enough to maintain this kind of invincible political invincibility. And this is a big problem for Scioli. Um, the second problem that they have, which is again is typical of Peronismo, typical of, if you want to put that label, I don't want to discuss it now, the kind of populist parties, is the personalization of power and hence the problem of the succession of the leader. And this was a big problem for uh, the Frente por la Victoria and for Cristina. And uh, I think that arguably uh, Cristina lost control of the succession in 2013 when, when uh, the, the, the election for Congress showed that she didn't have the, the numbers in Congress to change the constitution and being reelected. And what she has been doing since is trying to manage a situation that was very difficult to manage in terms of her own succession and then ended with Scioli as a not very convincing for her candidate as this world. Um, there was um, this joke circulating in, in social media when you know the, 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 there was a big delay uh, between the, the closing of the vote and, and, and the government's year and said the, the government is preparing the fraud against Scioli. <laughs> That's what they the saying there. Um, but the idea that uh, <clears throat> that was a problem for Kitty. The third, again, uh, Anna's choice is uh, her failure to keep the party together. If, of course, Massa was uh, inside the Peronist party, the Peronist candidate would have won the election. It didn't, and this is another reason. Um, so, a, a few thoughts about the results um, in terms of each of the candidates. Um, <clears throat> what about Christina? I, I think that Christina was a big loser in the election, and I think the, the sort of the main sort of, if you want everything about this loss, is the difference between the 54% of the vote she got in 2011 and the 38% that Scioli got there. She would say, well, I was not the candidate, the candidate was Scioli, but again, the difference is massive. And surely she lost her a lot of the middle classes. I, there are many reasons, the deterioration of the economy, her political style, blah, 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 all of that. Um, what about the rest of the candidates? Well. The interesting thing that Scioli got almost exactly half percent or more of the votes that he got in the primary election, and this shows something that is quite interesting. Um, we all know that Peronismo has a quite high floor in terms of the minimum percentage of votes that it gets in the election because of these votes, the captive votes in the provinces and so on, and, and, and its appeal up to an important sector of Argentina, uh, popular sector. Uh, but what shows is that the, the floor and the ceiling of Peronist voted almost collapsed. So they couldn't get all much about the, the sort of vote that they have, a sort of guarantee almost in any election. So they couldn't go beyond the, the sort of the two, three, the very small percentage that they need to, to get over the 40%. Uh, in terms of Macri, um, he would, 
for all accounts, he didn't run a great campaign. And uh, that was a great surprise why, why you know, his great surge in, in, in votes over there. So where did the votes for Macri came from? They didn't come from, obviously, from Ciolistas, uh, but they didn't also came from the votes from Massa. Massa more or less got the, 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 the same percentage that he had in the primary. It came from basically two different or three different uh, sources. One is the increase in the, number, in the percentage of people that participated in the election compared to, to the primaries, which I think was 64% in the primary, 80%. 74, 74. Sorry? 74. 74 and 80. 80. So he got the majority of these votes. He got the majority of, of votes that he'd been spoiling in the primaries and a little bit of the votes of a sub-bitzer of the candidate of the left. That was the difference. But again, that was again not, perhaps not great merit of, 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 of Macri. And Massa, I think he uh, should be quite happy with, because it, in this polarizing scenario, it was very difficult for him, should have been very difficult to keep the vote he got in the primary he got. And this make, puts him in a very important position for the second round. So what about the second round? Um, by definition, uh, second round elections are polarizing elections. You have two candidates and they have effectively to fight each other and to destroy each other. And this is politics. Politics is the definition of the enemy. So how would this sort of candidate play there? Um, in terms of Scioli, uh, one scenario I think he would play on the first, his first statement of the election hint on that why it doesn't mean necessarily he will go all the way that would be uh, what I would say to play the, the Dilma Rousseff second round election. Completely demonize, try to completely demonize Macri, the candidate of neoliberalists, the candidate who will take out the milk from your babies or at least the social security plans, the candidate of business or elite interest, uh, the, uh, and <clears throat> wrap himself in the Argentinian flag and wrap himself more, more and so that the Argentinian flag are uh, the kind of national popular, discurso nacional popular, who is very, very powerful in Argentina. And national popular refers, of course, to the Partido Justicialista that has been the sort of involvement of the national public, but goes beyond that. There are sectors of, of radical voters that are quite sympathetic to this moment, which is very difficult to describe. It's cultural, it's economic, more interventionist, anti-market, but also in terms of plebeian culture, social security, welfare, etc., etc., and sectors of the left that would rather vote that project than the kind of neoliberal that uh, Macri, according to Scioli, would <coughs> represent. Uh, and so that, for, for Scioli, the ideal scenario will be this polarization between if you want the Peronist national popular bloc and the neoliberal anti-Peronist bloc, and that will give him the majority, and demonizing Macri, of course, uh, nobody votes for the devil. Um, so that would be the, the Dilma Rousseff script. But Scioli has a lot of problems that Dilma didn't have at the election. First, uh, it's not that convinced, convincing in terms of the anti-neoliberal candidate, but he is a son of the 1990s. He came to politics under, under many, and of course, already Macri has noted that. He hasn't got a great credibility as the defender of the great crusade against neoliberalists. Uh, second, uh, the, of course, the, the, 
the Kataganada, the kind of uh, message of Christina has lost its shine <laughs> over the last two or three years of a very weak economic economic growth, if you want. Um, <coughs> and so, and third, if he goes very strong in terms of wrapping himself within the Peronist National Popular, uh, Kirchnerista vote, he will lose the kind of middle class votes that he will need to win there. So there are a lot of problems for Scioli to be very convincing about that. Um, what, uh, and then the, the worst scenario will be if he wins with this kind of discourse and become Dilma after the election, of course. Um, <coughs> I think his strategy would be almost the opposite to the strategy of Scioli, that is not polarizing, trying to not polarize the election, try to become the candidate of change, but not of too much change, uh, and try to convince those who uh, really that, that's not like him, but they want some kind of change without threatening, uh, making to do that. And this, again, is quite interesting. His first thing is he presents the candidato de la alegría, the candidate of happiness, the candidate of the change of mood that people that really are tired of the Kirchner and want sort of a less polarized, at least sort of a more normal kind of, of, of politics there. Uh, and again, um, his problem there is, would be how much change he would offer, uh, taking into account what Anna said, that many people don't like religion. That's the problem. And also try to convince people that for a lot of reasons don't like um, Macri to vote for him. Um, in terms of Massa, of course, ultimately, Massa has the key, not Massa, the voters, Massa voters, which aren't the same as Massa, they have the key to the election. Uh, and this will be completely essential for that. Uh, what will happen to Massa? Um, I think by all accounts, uh, I, I mean, his, his main interest is not in terms of electoral research, his main interest is to become the leader of the Partido Justicialista. And for that, I would think that would be the best scenario for him would be for Scioli to lose, and by the and of course, that will sort of uh, also um, make Christina sort of quite unpopular. The Partido Socialista can forgive many, many things, but it doesn't forgive very easily to lose elections, so that will hurt Christina quite a lot. Uh, the danger for him, as I see, if he comes to see very close and very strong for Macri, that the Peronists would say, you are a traitor, uh, you have contribute to the defeat of the Partido Justicialista. But I think he still he and all the, the signal he has sent them is uh, in favor of, of Macri. Uh, whether he will endorse Macri uh, strongly and personally, he would, or he would say, well, my program is closer to Macri, that seems probably this to be decided. But this doesn't secure Macri the sort of the votes of the people that vote for, for, for Massa. Um, these are mostly Peronistas, anti-Canaristas. Uh, whether they would stomach to vote for, for Macri is still a question mark. And also, there are two or three very important uh, justicialista uh, leaders that have been part of, 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 Mac, of Massa team, uh, particularly Lavagna and uh, Decota, uh, which again, uh, Scioli will try to get them to, to endorse him. I think they still will not support Scioli, and they will likely to, to sort of uh, vote for Macri. 
<coughs> but then again, uh, elections in, in, in show that third candidates, they have no, con no necessary great control of the votes of their supporters. So there is a great question mark, and I think there is still uh, a realistic possibility that Scioli could win the election. I wouldn't say, I'm making it stupid myself again, I wouldn't say that he's be the front runner because the momentum appears to be with Macri at the moment, momentum in politics is a lot, but I think it would be a very, very close election, uh, a, a very close second round. Um, and for Cristina, what happened to them? He came to the election in a very strong political position uh, before Sunday, and he has become extremely weakened since then. Um, some people would think that for her, <coughs> the best scenario would be the Alan Garcia scenario, that they have no candidate of her own, and that will leave her to run uh, against the, the neoliberal in four years' time. But uh, also, she has, she has been weak. She has been weakened. Uh, not you. You can never discount Christina. I think she's a good politician after all, like her or not. Um, <clears throat> two words about the future. Uh, the main challenge for whoever wins will be to secure governability, and this challenge is different from. Scioli and for Macri. Um, <clears throat> the Frente the Parliamentary government will keep control of the Senate. The Chamber of Deputies is quite divided. Uh, and the other element of power are the provincial governors, which in the majority are still justicialistas. So Macri will have to negotiate and learn something that, again, I'm, uh, and I said, has not very much part of the Argentinian political DNA to negotiate, to make concessions, and also to avoid the mistake that De La Rua did when he was elected in, uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, and again, for Scioli would be the problem of governability. And in terms of change, my last word, um, yes, no candidate have, has promised big change or gradual change, but I think the great question mark there is that uh, whether whoever wins uh, would be able to keep control of the economic situations or the facts, the markets, whatever you can, will have their own say and force uh, the hand of whoever is in power. If you have a 6% uh, fiscal deficit, an overvalued dollar, um, an inflation of 20% or 30% or 40%, whatever it is, uh, it's not that easy to be a gradualist. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much. And uh, now we have uh, right. Silly. Thank you, Juan, thank again, you. and thank you, everybody, for the uh, invitation. Um, I always think being the last uh, has uh, risks because people will have uh, stolen your uh, storm or whatever the expression is. I can't think. Your thunder. But they haven't stolen my thunder. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, and in fact, um, I think I'm, I'm just going to change everything. I was going to say, or at least uh, a lot of what I was going to say. And I'm going to start by disagreeing with uh, my um, uh, colleagues, uh, not, not completely, but in, in some, um, I think, very crucial areas. The, the first one is, what I want to talk about today is the legacy of Kirchnerismo. And I think that once I talk about that and give the facts of uh, the legacy, um, we will understand why people do want change, 
and why they did vote for change and why they are going to vote for change again and much more decisively in the, uh, in the second uh, round. Um, I'd also like to just make a comment about the myth of the invincibility of uh, Peronism. The, that myth was crushed by Alphonsine in 1983. So we know that Peronism can be defeated in an election. The myth that needs to be defeated is the idea that Peronism is the only one who can govern, the only party, the only group of people who can ensure governability or stability in Argentina. In fact, it's not like that. Somebody, I think my, uh, Anna mentioned the word perverse. It is a perverse uh, function of Peronism that doesn't allow anybody else to govern. So when people think of who to vote, they think, oh gosh, look at the radicales, you know, look at Alfonsine, look at De La Rua. Who are the only ones who can uh, maintain certain stability because at least they do not uh, pretend to destabilize those who are in government, those are the Peronists. So it's not that the Peronists know how to rule, the Peronists don't know how to behave in, uh, uh, as opposition. And this has, it comes to the essence of what Peronism is. Peronism is authoritarian, it's, uh, um, it's a national, uh, um, national uh, authoritarian uh, nationalism. It does not believe in uh, the principle, the rule of law. It does not believe in the separation of uh, powers. It only thinks of democracy in terms of numbers. And numbers, I mean, the, if you read what Maximo Kirchner, Mrs. Kirchner's son, was saying today is, ah, Cristina got 54%, Scioli got 34 or 38% or whatever, as if saying, you know, the numbers matter, those 54%, as if Cristina owned those votes. So another disagreement as to uh, what is, is going to happen with the voters of Massa. Nobody owns anybody's votes. Massa, whatever Massa decides doesn't mean that those who voted for him will follow. But most of the people, at least two-thirds of the people who voted for Massa, are disgruntled Peronists. Peronists who were left uh, behind by Nestor first and uh, Cristina secondly. Um, so I don't think it is Massa who has the key to the uh, second round. The other thing I, I uh, wanted to also mention is that um, Cristina is not, if I, I mean not mentioned, but I, something else to disagree with. I don't think Cristina is a good politician. Um, <laughs> I think that um, being authoritarian, being intolerant of other people and others' uh, opinions, uh, <coughs> refusing to, to listen, refusing to engage in any debate of ideas, I don't think that is what I would call a good politician. I think she is authoritarian. I think she wants to be a great leader, but this now I'm going to mention something about what I was originally going, uh, intending to uh, talk about, which is Howard Gardner's book. I don't know um, if you're familiar with a book that came out in 1995 called Leading Minds. Howard Gardner is a behavioral psychologist at Harvard. Brilliant uh, man, and he 
talks about, and, and basically what he says is, the great leader is a great storyteller. Now, somebody told this to Mrs. Kirchner. So she thought she needed to invent a story, a relato, that would take everybody with her. The problem is that she forgot to realize that the story has to be credible and the story has to resonate with those people who are here listening to your story. And this is where I think El Relato Kirchnerista, the uh, story that Mrs. Kirchner was telling about coming from hell in 2003 and now being in the, in the midst of this project of, uh, how do you say it in English? Modelo de raíz productiva, no, de matriz productiva con inclusión social. There's no productivity, there's no social inclusion. So even that model where she was going to take us, uh, we certainly are still waiting for that path to even begin. But the idea that she, that Nestor, that they, él, and something else that I mean, if, don't get me started with uh, Mrs. Kirchner as a, as a feminist, uh, please. Um, the idea that Nestor Kirchner saved Argentina from hell, that Argentina started in 2003, because this is the relato, this she is something that Mrs. Kirchner will repeat constantly. Nothing that came before 2003 has any value. Argentina really, the first, the beginnings of Argentina are in 2003. Now, this is outrageous, and it's the first thing that clashes with the perceptions and the, the experience of people who are listening to her story. But even leaving aside that uh, absurdity of saying that everything that happened before 2003 has to be forgotten very quickly and very soon, forgetting that she and her husband were part of the government and at, in government at the time of Menem in the 1990s, and that it was her husband who said that Menem was the best president that uh, ever uh, Argentina ever had. But leaving that aside, it's not even true in terms of the facts and figures. The big crisis in Argentina, which one can go into why poor De La Rua, who has had exactly the contrary international context that uh, Nestor Kirchner found in 2003. Um, but leaving that aside, to try and understand that what the reasons for the huge 2000, end of 2001-2002 crisis uh, were, the people who took Argentina out of that hell were three people. Were Dualde, Peronist, Lavagna, another Peronist, Dualde president, Lavagna economy minister, and Mario Blecher in the central bank. When Nestor Kirchner came to power in 2003, Argentina had already started to grow at 7%. He got just the moment of the uh, the tailwind of the commodity uh, rises and the whole atmosphere, the whole international context that has meant, and in, in the words of the UN, that the 2000s up had been or have been the best decade for emerging markets ever. So Mrs. Kirshen likes to talk about 
the victorious decade, the decade that since she and her husband were in power, everything, all indicators, everything was wonderful uh, in Argentina. In fact, we, if you look at the figures for Argentina compared, not to other parts of the world, just compared in the region, Argentina, with the exception of Venezuela, was the worst performer in the decade. Argentina grew less, had more inflation. She still has the third highest inflation in the world. More fiscal deficit, more currency controls, tax um, on, on, on exports, poverty. And this is the one thing that really makes me angry. <laughs> and we go back to the, the big lie, as I called, uh, referred to El Relato Kirchnerista. When reality, Perón used to say, la única verdad es la realidad. The Kirchners decided that when reality doesn't quite fit what you would like, then you change the figures that describe that reality. And we, have, we all know the story of what has happened with INDEC and the, the National uh, Institute for Statistics. So in fact, poverty has now been stopped measuring poverty two years ago when the figures uh, simply were not uh, satisfactory. And when the economy minister was asked about this, he said, oh, we don't count the poor because it would be stigmatizing them. Now, you tell me how a government can produce public policies without facts or figures, without knowing what is the problem that they are trying to confront. But there are uh, analysts in Argentina, and amongst them, the Catholic University, uh, that have been measuring poverty in the same way for the past 30 years. And following those analyses, then we know, or at least as far as much as we can know, that poverty is now back to 27%. It was 25% uh, last year. It was, it has, ne it never was, went as uh, far down as it did between the demonized 1990s. Between 1991 and 1994, before the tequila crisis, poverty had gone down to 17.7%. That was the lowest that Argentina ever had in terms of poverty. It's now 27%. Chile has managed to go down to 14%. And I'm not, you, you we're here at the Institute of the Americas, you can find out the figures for the rest of the, uh, of the region. So, figures. Poverty, I told you. And again, no official figures since uh, 2013. And if we consider structural poverty, can you believe it? The, the figures have improved, but look at the improvement. In, the, in, uh, in 2003, we had 83.9% of households that didn't have access to running water. Now we've got 80%. So there has been an improvement. And the sewers, we have gone down from, from people, from 47, uh, sorry, uh, the improvements were 50, from 53.1% down to 47.2% of the population without access to sewers. Now, there is an improvement, but not 
enough to talk about una uh, decada victoriosa. Uh, in education, and again, and this touches on the productivity bit of the matriz productiva con inclusión social, um, Argentina has been falling in all indices, in all uh, lists of productivity in the world. And it's not surprising when you look at what has happened with education. And you know that PISA tests that are taken, are, are the same tests is conducted in 65 countries. And Argentina is still uh, submitting tests, although I could imagine that Mrs. Kirchner would want that uh, stopped. Um, where are the... Uh... Argentina was in, uh, in 2000, occupied the 37th position out of 65 countries. That means in terms of the results, she was down to 37 and of a total of 65. She is now down to 59. So this is what the victorious decade did in terms of uh, education. And of course, as you know, it's not just a question of the, both the fiscal and, the, and, and uh, deficit and the current accounts and the trade uh, deficit, is the loss of self-sufficiency in energy, which is going to be the, it's already the most costly thing that Argentina will need, will have to, with the, the cost that she'll have to pay. It'll take at least another 10 years before Argentina will be able to regain the self-sufficiency in energy that she had. Argentina now is importing oil, oil not that much, still importing uh, gas. It's absolutely outrageous, and this is all part of the victorious um, decade. So, figures, whatever indicator you want, everything has, uh, has worsened. Um, let me just say something about the uh, figures to um, disagree a bit with um, Francisco in terms of uh, where of the results that the candidates had for their in the uh, elections. In fact, none of the three top uh, front runners uh, lost votes. Mm -hmm. They all won votes. The one who won most votes was Macri, who got 1.6 million votes more than he had in August in the primary elections. Scioli got 280,000 new votes, and Massa had 600,000 new votes. So they all, these were one and a half, uh, almost two million people who had not voted in the past so, and who now decided to vote. There were fewer blank votes this time and because people wanted to see what had happened in the past before deciding how they would vote in the elections, there was a lot of um, useful voting and the, the person who suffered most was the radical uh, candidate, Margarita Stolviser, who uh, now uh, got even fewer votes than the Trotskyist uh, candidate, which is quite something uh, to say. Um, anyway, I think Macri is coming up, Scioli is going down. My prediction, Macri is the next president of Argentina.